Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 183, and it's the story of Richard Case Nagel. There's one thing before we get started that I'd like your help with. There's been a slow trickle of folks out there signing up for our YouTube channel, and I really appreciate it, and a thanks to everyone who has already signed up. But we're still a long ways away from getting to 1,000 subscribers, which is the stated goal. We have about 3,000 loyal listeners out there, and over time, perhaps some five to 10,000 or more in total who have listened to the podcast at various moments. So that means that we need at least one out of every three of you that are currently loyal listeners to sign up. But really, less than 5% of our current listening audience has signed up for the channel. That's one in 20. And yet we need one in three of you all to sign up. There is an awful lot of you that have not done that yet. So if you're listening to this podcast and you appreciate how much work goes into bringing this free programming to you, please do make your way over to the YouTube channel, JFK The Enduring Secret, and sign up. It doesn't cost you a penny to sign up. And it would mean a lot to me. And I know there's basically been no material out there on the channel yet, but there will be. And some of that is actually coming pretty soon. It will be content that doesn't air here. That's right. That's supplemental in either form or content, principally because it will be in video form. But there is some very interesting topics and people who are going to be on with me as well. And that is because, well, after all, everyone has to have a reason to get over there and start listening, right? And I am going to give you one. But sign up first, please, and trust me on this one. Okay, back to today's episode. You're probably not going to get a more peculiar character to describe than Richard Case Snagel. He might even make Dean Andrews look like a tinker toy although no one tops Dean's Cajun accent. In fact, Nagel is so peculiar that some people think he was mentally unstable. And on the other hand, there were those that did not believe that at all, and for good reason. You know, mental health is a tricky thing, and any of us that have come into contact with a person suffering from mental health issues understands what I am talking about. I'll leave that up to you all after you hear all the facts and details underneath this story that we present in this series about Nagel. Lord knows there were enough psychiatrists that examined him to gain some form of understanding of that. And we'll get to that, but not right at this moment. Now, if you have studied the Kennedy case in any level of detail, you're probably already pretty familiar with Richard Case Nagel. And the man who is likely to be referred to as the definitive source about Nagel is author and JFK researcher Dick Russell. Russell thinks that Nagel, although mysterious, was anything but mentally unstable. Russell authored several books on the topic, and the most important one is entitled The Man Who Knew Too Much. He is a former reporter for The Village Voice 
and he's also an independent journalist. Oh, and about the pronunciation of Nagel's name, Russell says that it's okay to pronounce it either as Nagel or Nagal, because the man himself pronounced his own name both ways. And much of our storytelling about Nagel will come from the story told by Dick Russell in his books about Nagel, along with a plethora of personal letters that Nagel wrote over the years, his court case documents, government documents in the JFK collection, available to researchers and that are in the public domain and other sources as well. I'll explain the court case in a minute. The tagline in Russell's book is that Nagel was hired to kill Lee Harvey Oswald and thus prevent the assassination of JFK. Obviously, that didn't happen. But the reasons given for why it didn't happen, why he didn't prevent the assassination, may be more complex than meets the eye. He simply stated that he was an intelligence officer and chose not to be a murderer or commit treason. But that explanation is curious to me. He was a man well acquainted with murder and killing people, and so killing Lee Harvey Oswald to prevent the assassination of the President of the United States, no matter who might have ordered it, would hardly be labeled as treason. So here again is one of those murky statements by Nagel that taken alone doesn't really make much sense or hold much water. But then again, he was purportedly a double agent, working for both the Central Intelligence Agency and or elements of counterintelligence in this country, and at the same time, spying for Russia as a KGB or similar double agent. At times, even Nagel was not sure who was who in his own circumstance. (laughs) Well, if he didn't even know, my goodness, how are we going to sort it all out? But we are going to do our best in these next few episodes to do just that. Nagel would first meet Oswald while Oswald was in Japan, when they were both stationed there, and while Oswald was stationed at Atsugi Air Force Base. The cryptic story of he and Oswald, and Nagel's personally unique story, intertwine from there. Nagel was, as we shall explain in detail, already at that point in time, a part of our country's counterintelligence apparatus. That is, at the time he met Oswald in Japan. This fact is well documented, and we'll get to the details of that too. Nagel clearly had advanced knowledge of the assassination plot to kill President Kennedy. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind about that, and I believe that the evidence shows it. And he even wrote a letter in September 1963 to J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, informing him of the impending assassination attempt. Yes, folks, as I say all the time on this show, you can't write this stuff. Of course, that letter was never recovered. Imagine that. But we'll get into the authenticity of this claim, too, and what other evidence that might substantiate that the letter was sent and received at the FBI, and why so much of what Nagel claims may be the real key to solving the JFK case and the puzzle of Oswald's involvement. Nagel was a highly decorated Army veteran who served in Korea and was the youngest man serving in the field to be promoted to the rank of captain during that conflict. That, in and of itself, was quite an accomplishment, quite a pedigree. His battlefield leadership was impeccable, and he was wounded on the battlefield on three separate occasions. 
He was a paratrooper as well by training. Bravery was not lacking in this man. And, among so many of his notable life events, Nagel survived a horrific military airplane crash. And, in fact, he survived two military airplane crashes. But the second and worst one left everyone dead on the flight but Nagel himself. And he was lucky to have survived. But the injuries he sustained would leave his face and head permanently scarred and disfigured, even after some subsequent plastic surgery. And there would be a continuing question of some sorts about whether the injuries to the brain that he sustained in the airplane crash were responsible for later behavior. Those brain injuries would become a central point in granting his retrial on the bank case, albeit against his will, as Nagel was totally against any defense strategy that was based on mental incompetency or temporary insanity. Nagel would come to believe that the government authorities had a more nefarious objective in labeling him as mentally incompetent, and that was to, and I quote, salt him away and take him offline so that he could not discuss the JFK matter. Despite the later but lingering question regarding the impact of those injuries on his mental health, he would be pronounced by the military as being mentally and physically fit after the plane crash in 1954, and he would then receive Army intelligence training shortly afterward. So something must have been right with him. Again, you will hear the details of this medical history later in the episodes, along with opinions of medical experts who testified at both his original trial and his retrial. And you yourself can determine how impactful this is to believing Nagel and placing confidence in his story. And you yourself can also put into context the chain of events that on the one hand allowed Nagel to obtain a second trial, but on the other hand, at least from Nagel's view, might have been influenced in the background by the country's intelligence apparatus and their desire by then to keep Nagel isolated, at least for a time, as it related to the JFK matter. Again, as Nagel describes it, salted away. Oh, and what about the trial, you say? Yes, I haven't said much about that yet, have I? Because the story just keeps getting better and better all the time. Nagel is most famously known for walking into a bank located in El Paso, Texas. And after approaching a teller, he pulled out a forty-five pistol, declared it was a real gun, and then fired two shots into the wall in order to draw authorities to the scene and get himself arrested. Now, your average Joe might scratch his head on this one, thinking that anyone doing that, without knowing anything else about the circumstance, would have to conclude one of two things about this character, Nagel. Either he had the intention of robbing the bank, or he was mentally unstable in some way. Or maybe both of these two things were true. But here's the thing. Likely, none of these two things were true. Robbing a bank was not what Nagel was doing, but he wasn't mentally unstable at the time. Maybe stupid and not thinking straight, but likely not unstable. So what was he doing if he was not robbing a bank and not unstable? Just what in the heck would be the motivation around getting arrested? Well, the short answer is that Nagel had already been drawn into the middle of the group 
that was effectuating the assassination plot to kill the president. And he thought that if he were arrested and detained prior to the assassination, that would solve a myriad of problems for him. Okay, even what I just said is kind of cryptic, isn't it? So what problems am I talking about here? Well, we'll describe this in greater detail and context in the episodes as we get there. But the essence of it was that Nagel thought that if he were in the custody of authorities for the commission of a crime, he would not by definition be in a position to carry out his stated intelligence or counterintelligence assignment at the time. In short, he could avoid carrying out his orders to murder Lee Harvey Oswald. I know. Wait, what? What did you just say? Yes, more explanation needed on that too. And this next point, while not central to his circumstance, but still relevant, Being picked up by the authorities would ensure that Nagel's whereabouts on the assassination date would be well known to both the FBI and the security agencies of both the United States and also perhaps to Russia as well, thereby providing a well-publicized excuse, easily heard by the Russians, that he was not in a position to kill Oswald and, at the same time, make it impossible for him to be drawn deeper into the plot than he already was, and then possibly implicated in God knows what way by the actual perpetrators. Perhaps he too was afraid of becoming a patsy of some sort. Although in later years he attempts through correspondence to completely refute the idea that he was worried about that in September of 1963. Are you still scratching your head? Also, if you are paying attention to the dates, You may be thinking that I just said he was arrested on September 20th, 1963, some two months before JFK was assassinated. Well, you see there were multiple plots to kill the president that were developing and unfolding in that time frame. And the one that was imminent on September 20th was a plot that was actually set to take place sometime between September 23rd and the 27th or thereabouts just a few days later, and it was to take place in Washington, D.C., or so Nagel thought at the time he entered the bank in El Paso and fired those two shots. The popular storytelling about Nagel is that he fired the shots in the bank to generate an alibi. Well, Nagel himself refutes the idea of an alibi, and I put that term in quotes. In his own storytelling, he himself would say that he was on his way out of the country, and for that reason, He didn't need an alibi as to where he was, and he was clearly not going to be in Washington, or later in Dallas either, at the time of the actual assassination. No, he would be far away, in a foreign country. So again, what was the motivation? Well, as I said, the more proximate reason that he was looking for was a plausible circumstance, particularly in the eyes of a Soviet handler or a CIA handler, that he was not able to carry out the intended orders of killing Oswald. Nagel thought that walking into that bank in El Paso and firing those two shots would result in nothing more than a minor criminal charge, essentially the discharge of a firearm on federal property. His rather naive or mentally twisted view of it all at that moment 
is that the punishment would be minimal and that he was not likely to be convicted of much more or serve much time either. That turned out to be a long way from the truth. The FBI and other federal authorities did not take kindly to people walking into banks and firing shots with a 45 caliber pistol. That sort of thing tends to garner a lot of public attention, and it's an act that you can't underestimate the public sensitivity to, especially in those days. Remember, this was really not that long after the Bonnie and Clyde bank robbing era. So they charged him with entering a federally insured bank with intent to rob and another count of intent to commit robbery, two counts in total. Thus began a long odyssey associated with this bank case that encompassed a rather speedy trial and conviction that occurred in May 1964, for which he was sentenced to 10 years in a federal penitentiary. Then, after some legal maneuvering, a second retrial was granted, resulting in a second conviction, all of which resulted in a cumulative incarceration of Nagel in federal prisons in the El Paso jail, including some time at the famous Leavenworth and one federal medical psychiatric facility in Springfield, Missouri. All of that together lasting about four and a half years before he was finally and suddenly released. During that time, he himself would work tirelessly on his own case. During the trials, he fired his own court-appointed lawyers on more than one occasion, and he argued vehemently with them that a plea of temporary insanity was totally inappropriate and not an acceptable defense strategy. He would eventually write his own well-drafted writ of petition for habeas corpus, and in a separate matter would retain Bernard Bud Fensterwald in his suit against the Veterans Administration in an attempt to increase his military disability payments. The VA matter eventually became another source of material in studying Nagel. That case in particular was simply a matter of fighting the government on the degree of disability that resulted from his military service. The Army awarded him disability compensation based on a numerical calculation that amounted to a disability of 64%, whatever that means. Well, he was seeking a measure of complete disability, or 100%, and he would retain the famous attorney, as I just mentioned, Bernard Bud Fensterwald, to work with him on the case. Fensterwald, as you may know, was a co-founding member of the private committee to investigate assassinations. Fensterwall was famously involved in much early JFK assassination murder case and conspiracy research. He was quite an attorney as well, and among his famous clients, Fensterwall would represent James Earl Ray, the alleged assassin at the time of Martin Luther King, and later would represent Watergate burglar and former CIA employee James McCord. Eventually, Nagel would grant access to Dick Russell in order for him to peer inside of what files Fensterwald had accumulated safely under attorney-client privilege as part of the VA legal case. But I digress there, so back to the bank case. Nagel's insistence on dropping the insanity angle was largely ignored to some extent by his then-court-appointed lawyers, Gus Russo and Joe Calamia and the public and private records of these machinations, the use of an insanity defense as a strategy to gain release from federal prison, further muddied the waters about what the truth was related to Nagel's true mental status. 
Nagel's lawyer secured a second trial, a rare thing after a conviction, and it was largely due to the fact that the defense team at the time of the first trial was unaware of Nagel's second airplane crash and the related brain injury and a certain subsequent psychiatric diagnosis that occurred, evidence that was not made available to them or disclosed by Nagel during the course of conducting the first trial. When this did all become known, it motivated Nagel's own defense lawyers to more vigorously pursue a new trial strategy, where Nagel would be shown as lacking mental capacity to distinguish between right and wrong, at least at the moment of the crime. And with the lawyers doing so in order to get him potentially sprung from a federal penitentiary. So you see, it's hard to discern what were just true machinations pursued by the defense to win the case and what was truly the state of Nagel's mental fitness at the moment of the bank incident. And to raise doubt, there was a series of mental health events that occurred before the bank incident. And we'll get into those later in these episodes, too. Yes, sirree, the waters are muddy everywhere, all the way through this ordeal. But keep in mind, and despite all of that, most of the psychiatric evaluations found him fit to stand trial. But regardless of whether his mental health was a true red herring or whether it had real bearing on the case, Nagel struggled to try and introduce into the courtroom proceeding the real reason why he had walked into that bank and taken those shots. The real reason was the impending assassination of JFK, but the government and its forces were at work to suppress any such evidence, and the rules of evidence were on their side. Whether that was with good intention or not, well, I will leave that up to you as you listen in on the facts as they unfold. But nothing of that sort was going to make its way into the trial, either the original trial or the second one. Not a peep about Nagel's true intentions, as it related to his connection to Lee Harvey Oswald and his rather circuitous connection to the plot to kill the president. The government's insurance policy for all of that was effectuated differently in the first trial, and rather overtly. And here is what happened. Within 30 days of the president's assassination, and just shortly after Lyndon Johnson's becoming president, in December 1963, shortly before Christmas, a good friend and political crony of Johnson's, Congressman Homer Thornberry, became the judge on this case. Thornberry was a man who was close enough to Johnson to ride in the presidential motorcade that day in Dallas. Other Texas congressmen did that too. It wasn't necessarily that special. But Homer Thornberry also spent the first week or so after the assassination in Washington with Johnson as a close confidant and advisor, helping to guide him through the fog as he took over the reins from JFK. Hmm. Well, Thornberry was named to replace R. Ewing Thomason as the presiding judge in the United States District Court of the Western District of Texas. Some say that Thomason promptly retired from the bench, stepping away to let Thornberry take the reins. And as some point out, just as I just mentioned, that happened just after Johnson's ascension to the presidency. Within a month, in December 1963, Thornberry was now a federal judge and now presiding over the Nagel case, a case that was coming to trial soon and 
probably in the next couple of months. Some found this curious, but what most folks fail to realize is that Kennedy had nominated Thornberry to that position in the court, obviously before his assassination, of course, and so it was not something that was effectuated unilaterally by President Johnson, although Johnson may have expedited things a bit. It just wasn't something, I think, that nefariously happened, as some might imply, and happened in order to keep a lid on the JFK assassination materials that might be produced at trial. I don't think that Thornberry's appointment had much, if anything, to do with that. But you never know. Somebody might have whispered in his ear. Regardless of all that, it is true that now, under the rules of evidence, Thornberry makes the decision to strictly exclude any testimony or evidence that he believes to be peripheral to the bank case itself. And of course, that means that anything said to FBI agents during the course of the investigation by Nagel or other evidence in Nagel's possession about the assassination were essentially categorically excluded from the trial. Obviously, the government wanted all of this kind of evidence suppressed for obvious reasons. But Nagel was now desperately in need of evidence that clearly showed that he had no intent to rob a bank. And intent was clearly the operative key word here. And of course, just about any shred of this other evidence about the assassination related to his real motive for walking into that bank would have blown away the government's case that Nagel had any intent to rob the National Bank of El Paso. They would hear none of it, and much of that was thanks to Homer Thornberry. So I guess there could have been a whisper in the ear about keeping the evidence tight in the case. After all, the rules of evidence were largely on the side of the judge on this one. But sadly, truth is not always present in a courtroom. It was even clear to the arresting officer, James Bundren, who appeared at Nagel's arraignment hearing on November 19, 1963, just three days before Kennedy was shot, that Nagel had no intent to rob the bank. As the participants were leaving the arraignment, Bundren would turn to Nagel and say, you didn't really intend to rob that bank, did you? And Nagel would respond back, you're a pretty smart policeman. And Nagel would go on to say, I am just glad that I am not going to be in Dallas. Now, that particular comment by Nagel was made so close to the date of the assassination that it stuck with Officer Bundren when news of Kennedy's death poured over the airways just a few days later. It was an eerie thing, and Bundred would remain closed-mouthed for a very long time about the Nagel arraignment and the comments he made right after until Russell would interview him many years later. By the time of the second trial, it was clear to many, and of course that included Nagel, that there were forces in the government that not only wanted the evidence about the JFK matter suppressed from his bank trial, but there were others that also wanted Nagel to remain in jail. And in Nagel's mind, the objective was to sequester him, at least for a time, and perhaps much of it in a federal medical facility. With all of this ensuring limited, if any, contact with the outside world. That was a prophecy which ultimately came true and which also ensured that what he might be saying about the assassination would be quelled. There was a period of time during his incarceration for almost 11 months where he was not even allowed to read a newspaper. And let's face it, trumpeting anything from a federal prison, a federal prison psychiatric ward, might only get a yawn. And that fact would dog Nagel forever 
and obtaining legitimacy around his story. There was enough controversy stirred by his self-pen writ of habeas corpus and the fact that Nagel had already served a serious amount of time in jail that some just wanted to drop the case before the second trial came around. In fact, the assistant U.S. attorney on the case at the time petitioned that the case against Nagel be dropped. Perhaps clearly by that time, the U.S. Attorney's Office was itself convinced that there was no intent to rob the bank. And perhaps underneath the covers, they too were being poked to let things go in order to reduce the risk that further introductions of the JFK conspiracy evidence could be formally introduced at the second trial. Had that occurred, it would have been an obvious disaster for the U.S. security agencies and the FBI. No one really knows the behind-the-scenes machinations that took place during those trial periods. But in the end, the then-judge on the second case put his foot down and stated that there would be no dismissal of the charges and that the case would go forward and it would be retried. Oddly put, as judges normally don't have jurisdiction over whether U.S. attorneys can drop a charge. I don't know all the legal ins and outs of this, but it seemed as if what was happening on the surface of things may have indicated that various elements of the government differed on what the best course of action was to silence Richard Case Nagel when it came to talking about the JFK matter. Alternatively, it may have just been that the official record at that time was that there was a verdict on record as having convicted him. Without a second trial to unconvict him on the merits, the U.S. Attorney's Office was not in a position to drop the charges. Lawyers out there that are listening to the podcast may better understand this legal technicality. Whatever the case was, and I don't purport to know, in the end, sadly for Nagel, the trial went forward without any of the JFK evidence being introduced. His lawyers attempted to question his sanity with no real luck. And ultimately, he was convicted of intent to rob a bank for a second time. All the second trial really did was introduce additional concerns about the psychological condition of Richard Case Nagel. It did nothing to free him from prison. Let's be clear. Nagel wrote a lot of letters to all sorts of people, and especially from prison. Recipients included Robert Kennedy, Senator Richard Russell, two letters to J. Lee Rankin, the chief counsel for the Warren Commission. He wrote to Bud Fensterwald about his VA case. And later he wrote to Dick Russell, who was also known over the years to send clarifying letters to newspapers and other publications when an occasional article would pop up about him. And he would do so when these publications would inevitably get some of the details wrong. His writings are mostly crisp and articulate, reinforcing that this was a man with a powerful intellect, with attention to detail and ability to recall with precision facts and people and events and dates and details of all sort. Well, if he was crazy, that the crazy switch was turned off during most of the moments when he found himself writing all these full-length letters. Now, I say most of the time, but not always, as he sometimes engaged in language that was cryptic or deceptive, and many difficult paragraphs can be found in his writings. But here is the overall point. I'm sure all of this was representative of the man that Dick Russell first met in California. As Russell arrived at his home unannounced, it was let in 
for their very first conversation, a conversation in which Nagel taped the both of them talking, but refused, ironically, to allow Russell, the interviewer, to do the same. Another form of insurance policy, as Nagel would put it, an insurance policy that he applied somewhat routinely to more than his conversations with Dick Russell, and whose need arose from the constant twisting of his words by those that he had spoken to, in the press or otherwise, true or not. So I guess he was taping these conversations for his own sanity, so to speak, (laughs) no pun intended, Wonder where all those tapes went to. Wouldn't they be interesting to listen to and to analyze? And that was not the only category of conversations that he taped. Perhaps the most famous example was a surreptitiously taped conversation that supposedly took place in the summer of 1963, with Oswald and himself present, along with two other conspirators speaking on the tape. Both the two other conspirators were of Latin descent and possibly One of them was Sergio Arcacha-Smith, and possibly the other, a character named Raul. The voices on the tape were speaking in Spanish, and the tape purportedly contains a discussion between the two Latins regarding the assassination of the president. And at one point, Nagel would contend that you could also hear Oswald speaking in English as well, and that he spoke in a clearly recognizable voice. Nagel supposedly kept this tape, secretly dashed away in the custody of a friend, and contained inside a locked footlocker. He kept it as his personal insurance policy. Again, he liked to call it that. He would maintain on various occasions that he wanted the counterintelligence and security services to understand that killing him would only mean that this evidence would then be released. The final disposition of that tape, well, you'll have to wait to the very last Nagel episode to hear the final word on that. We'll get into all of that, of course, in more detail in the rest of the episodes on Nagel. Today is just a big picture overview. Now, if you thought black was white and white was black when listening to the other episodes in the Garrison series, well, things just got one more shade of inside out. One more version of black is white. Oh, and that reminds me. In that estuary of episodes between Garrison and our pivot to the CIA, Nagel is a perfect segue character. He too was interviewed by Garrison, and as you might expect, Garrison considered him to be a central and important figure, perhaps the most important living witness in the case. But, for all the reasons that you will better understand as we progress through the series, even Garrison himself would not attempt to put Nagel on the stand in the Clay Shaw case. And some of it was a matter of timing and circumstance for Nagel and Garrison, and some of it was the fact that even Garrison knew that Nagel would quite possibly be a disaster of sorts on the stand when questioned by the likes of a man such as Irvin Diamond. Perhaps more problematic is that Garrison dispatched one of his assistant district attorneys at the time, William Martin, to interview Nagel while he was still in jail. Nagel figured out before Garrison did that William Martin was CIA and that he had infiltrated Garrison's office. That immediately reduced the flow of information to Garrison and his team. Had Garrison known and had Garrison sent someone different, it might very well have gone another way because Nagel at one point 
was very enthusiastic about telling his story to Garrison and seemed to have every intention of turning over the infamous Oswald tape to Garrison and his team. But as soon as he discovered who Martin really was, the deal was off. Nagel was released from U.S. prison in 1968, and not long after, he found himself back to work for the CIA. He made his way to Europe, and he was detained in East Germany, arrested and held there for a period of about four months. And during that time, his Russian handlers took him back to Moscow for a brief interlude. He was eventually released under a very high-profile prisoner exchange. And this whole thing is a fascinating story that we will tell you a little bit more about later in this episode and later in the series, too. Then, fast forward to 1992, Nagel had managed to remain out of the mainstream conspiracy spotlight for almost 24 years, occasionally his name surfacing in an assassination article from time to time. Now it was late 1991 and early 1992, and we were in the midst of the initial debut of Oliver Stone's film JFK. Remember the infamous JFK movie character Mr. X, played by Donald Sutherland? Remember him? He meets Garrison. Remember the park scene? And he tells him the gripping and mysterious story behind the assassination. You see, that actual meeting of sorts, the scene depicted in the movie, well, it actually did take place. Garrison would meet with Nagel two times, and one of those meetings took place in Central Park in New York City, much as it was depicted in the film. But the real shame is that Richard Case Nagel never testified under oath before the Warren Commission, the Church Committee, the House Select Committee on Assassinations. He didn't testify at the Clay Shaw trial, and he never testified at the final government inquiries conducted by the Assassination Records Review Board. Dick Russell maintains to this day that for all of Nagel's cloak and dagger and cat and mouse ways, and those are my words to describe what Russell patiently put up with over the years to slowly pull the story out of Nagel, Russell's contention was that Nagel was never forced to tell the truth, the whole truth, under oath. But Russell was inclined to believe that Nagel knew a lot more in the way of critical facts than he told, and that he would have told the whole story under oath had he been compelled by the government investigators to do so. He almost did. You see, he would die at the tender age of 65 from an apparent heart attack. The year was 1995, and his death outside of Los Angeles would coincide with his impending meeting and interview by the Assassination Records Review Board. The subpoena from the ARRB that summoned Nagel to Washington arrived at his home in California just one day before his death. Imagine that. Now, whether the cause of his death was mysterious or not might remain debatable. You see, Nagel's body underwent an autopsy, and the cause of death was labeled a heart attack. Yet, Nagel had no previous history of heart problems. But no doubt, the timing of his death, occurring just before his scheduled appearance, before the ARRB, is reminiscent of the deaths of Sam Giancana and Johnny Roselli, and also of George de Morinchild, all of them occurring on or before the investigations conducted by the House Select Committee on Assassinations in the late 70s. I think it's pretty easy to classify his death as one of those in the mysterious category associated with the assassination. Dick Russell thinks he very well might have been murdered. 
Lots of people in those days died of heart attacks, brought on by others, if you know what I mean. I'm just saying. The story of Richard Case Nagel is too rich and colorful to tell in one episode, at least for a guy like me and my storytelling style. So telling the story of this man, well, we'll just have to break it up into several episodes. And today's episode was an overview, packing as much in as I can, but being mindful of the time. But there is much more. You know, it's easy to get lost in the details of this story. The story of Richard Case Nagel is fascinating. But we mustn't lose the lessons of what this story essentially speaks to when it's all said and done. When it's all said and done, there are many explosive takeaways in this story. Takeaways that, for me, tend to help bring many of the puzzling pieces of the JFK story into more clear focus, if that is at all possible. And I am going to highlight them now, before we close today, so that we can think about them as we hear more in upcoming episodes as his story unfolds in more detail. Point number one, that the Russians had enough penetration into the CIA and other U.S. intelligence agencies to determine that a plot to kill President Kennedy was underway. Point number two, that the Russians themselves had no interest whatsoever in seeing Kennedy assassinated. Point number three, that the Russians, in fact, were involved covertly in attempting to stop the assassination once they became aware that a plot existed. Point number four, they did this by deploying their double agent, Richard Case Nagel, to monitor the plot and its progress. Point number five, coincidentally, at the same time, Nagel was given an assignment unrelated to monitor Oswald. Although the idea of it being a coincidence seems dubious. Point number six, the plot that was discovered initially eventually morphed into multiple plots to kill the president in various cities on various dates. And of course we know that from others too, from the events that played out in Chicago and Miami and Tampa. And now Nagel tells us of a discussion about doing it in Los Angeles at one point. Point number seven, one of those plots drew Oswald into the picture and brought two separate counterintelligence assignments together. Assignments that Nagel was charged by the Russians with doing. Monitoring Oswald on the one hand and monitoring the initial assassination plotting on the other. Point number eight. Once these two paths crossed, the Russians gave Nagel explicit instructions. And they were this. Convince Oswald that he was being used as a patsy, or, if that was unsuccessful, kill Oswald, and eliminate the critical patsy that had been recruited to play the role, thus quelling the conspirators' ability to effectuate the assassination. Point number nine. Nagel refused to do either, for reasons that are not quite clear, really, other than perhaps he figured out he was in the middle of a most heroic and horrific squeeze play that might unwittingly result in his own demise, he himself being now so close to all of this. Point number 10. So Nagel panicked and decided that the bank scheme would provide him some cover to avoid the act of killing Oswald. Bizarre, you say? Well, yes. 
for a man that knew how to kill and had been engaged in black ops and general warfare for more than a decade. But it's not implausible. And probably at that moment, he was full of what I might characterize as reasonable paranoia about the whole circumstance. Wouldn't you be? Point number 11. The assignment and motivation for his dangle by the Americans as a double agent is unclear. But there was more to that story that was never revealed by Nagel. And he himself thinks that his CIA contact who authorized his connection to the Soviets, a man he recognizes as having the first name of Bob, was he himself probably a Soviet. Point number 12. Nagel goes on to emphasize that he and Oswald had something else that they were doing, an unrelated assignment, an assignment that has never been revealed. And to this day, it's unknown to Russell and others closest to this. That, of course, just adds to the mystery, and it adds in a big way. Point number 13. Nagel also states that the original plan that was uncovered was a plan to kill not only Kennedy, but other unspecified officials as well. Whether they were just others in the motorcade that day or others completely unrelated to that event was never clearly revealed. Point number 14. For what it's worth, Nagel himself, a war hero and a person who had given much for this country, had seen enough bad stuff during the Korean War and in the Army's field intelligence operations units super-secret components of Army intelligence engaged in their own black ops, well, he had seen enough to sour his view of our country and its political systems. Sadly, it influenced his personal decisions to embrace, at times, some communist thinkings, and thus to engage with the Russians in a shadowy game of double-agent chess between a shadowy group of people on both the Russian and American side of the intelligence ledgers. Undoubtedly, there were elements of regret in later years by Nagel. Point number 15. In the end, he would unequivocally state that the conspiracy was undoubtedly a domestic plot and that no foreign countries had engaged in it, although both the Cuban governments and the Russian governments knew about the plots in advance through various channels. Point number 16. He would underscore that Lee Harvey Oswald was involved in the assassination plot. But did he pull the trigger that day? Nagel thinks he did, and that Oswald was duped by some of our favorite cast of JFK assassination characters. Anti-Castro Cubans posing as pro-Castro Cubans. Appealing to Oswald's ego and sense of wanting to be somebody notable in history. Who then? Who then duped him? Well, Nagel says none other than the famous Angel and Leopoldo from the famous Sylvia Odio incident. Perhaps uh, recruiting Oswald by telling him that he would be welcomed with open arms by Castro and have great glory in Cuba if he could only first do this great deed. A deed, by the way, not at all sanctioned by the Cuban government. And probably at that moment, being perpetrated by rogue elements of the CIA or other U.S. intelligence operatives masquerading as pro-Castro characters. Point number 17. In the scenario that Nagel embraces, 
that Oswald was involved, it still begs the answer to the one question that haunts everyone trying to figure out Oswald. That is, we know that around the same time, Oswald was working with the likes of Guy Bannister and David Ferry and others at 544 Camp Street during that summer of 1963. Nagel confirms this, by the way, but Bannister and Ferry and the likes of Sergio Arcacha Smith were fervently anti-communist and anti-Castro. So would a true Marxist really get mixed up helping the likes of Bannister and Ferry? Well, whatever Oswald was, he certainly did get mixed up with them. This part has never made sense to me if you believe that Oswald took the shots, unless Oswald himself was perhaps a double agent who did take the shot. Otherwise, it seems like he really was just a patsy, never taking a shot and perfectly set up to take the fall. But again, that doesn't jive with what Nagel says. The riddle continues. Point number 18. Dick Russell, in more recent years, as his thinking on the Nagel circumstances has progressed, has introduced other thoughts, specifically that there was some sort of false flag operation that day in Dealey Plaza. A false flag operation that went awry, and that others who truly wanted Kennedy dead infiltrated the false flag operation and took it over or used it for cover in some way to effectuate the assassination of the president, and that this false flag operation may have gone as far up the chain as Desmond Fitzgerald in the White House. Desmond Fitzgerald knew who Lee Harvey Oswald was. Well, he also knew who Richard Case Nagel was. So in other words, could the United States military or intelligence services have been in the middle of staging a faked ambush of the president, a staging that was to include real shots fired at the president, of course with the intention of missing him, but with the expressed intention of nabbing pro-Castro elements for the crime and using the circumstance to spark an international incident that would lead to an expedited invasion of Cuba even if by other clandestine forces, but this time, perhaps, with U.S. backing. Point number 19, and this is really just me now, that whole scenario is kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? But I'll say it again, that secretly, anti-Kennedy forces get wind of this false flag operation and perhaps take it over or use it as cover for a second shooting team, unbeknownst to the false flag team and then they fire the fatal shot, while the false flag team dutifully executes a missed shot, and with the fatal shot being much to the surprise of those commanding the false flag force. Look, there are endless permutations of all of this, of course. Could the shooters have included Oswald as the false flag shooter, and he was the only one whose bullet deliberately went astray that day? only for him to find very shortly thereafter that the president was dead and he had been clearly set up as the patsy, just as he proclaimed in the hallway of the Dallas Police Department. As I listen to someone like Dick Russell, I am highly inclined to believe him and to believe in his thinking. His research is highly credible and he doesn't jump to conclusions very easily. 
Yet, as I summarize things and write my own thoughts on all that I have learned about the Richard K. Snagel circumstance, I am still inclined to sit back and just shake my head. Because, folks, you just can't write this stuff. I'm not sure what to believe. But Russell's theory sure seems plausible to me when you begin to heavily study all the pieces. Still, it's a pretty big leap to think that someone as high up as Desmond Fitzgerald would authorize a false flag operation that involves an actual gunshot aimed in the direction of the president. But stranger things have happened. And when we finally catch up with the CIA's Northwood project, you'll better understand why this is not as implausible as it sounds. But still, it does sound just plain crazy. But to understand it, you have to understand how crazed people were in this period about Cuba. Many of you may not have listened to the entire Cuba series that we did, and some of you may consider that too much of a wander. But the reality is that the economic stakes in Cuba were absolutely enormous. And the geopolitical implications of losing control of the island were also enormous for the United States as a whole. And to top it off, it's really hard for anyone to understand how emotional this topic was for the Cubans who were literally torn from their own soil and who lost everything, including loved ones and their fight against Castro and the communists. Nagel would be explicit that the Cubans got wind of what JFK was trying to do to normalize relations with Cuba using a back channel. It nullified everything he said in the Orange Bowl to those survivors of the Bay of Pigs. And while there might have been a duality of purpose going on at that very moment, with troops in Central America under Manuel Artema ready to make their way back to the shores of Cuba, that was not included in the calculation that incensed these Cubans. It was apparent to them that Kennedy was lying so overtly that they now saw him as a simple double-crosser who was in the way of getting their country back and needed to go. Point number 20. In his later years, Nagel would reveal to Dick Russell that when he was detained by the East Germans after his release from American prison, he actually was taken back to Russia and interrogated. It was there that he wrote in his own pen a complete confession of the events that he participated in related to Kennedy's assassination and his participation in the reconnaissance and other involvement he may have had as a result of the monitoring of the assassination plot. This is a story that we are going to tell in more detail, and Dick Russell cites the work of Peter Lemkin as documents have slowly made their way on release from East Germany. But the point I want to make here is that the only place where Nagel revealed all and wrote it all down is with his time in 1968 that he spent being debriefed by the KGB in Russia. So, there is still hope that the document will be revealed without alterations someday and possibly tell us the truth, the whole truth about the assassination. As researchers in this country focus on those last few domestic documents that were caught in the original sweep. The head fake around all of those is curious, as there still exists other documents outside that realm, nestled elsewhere, that are possibly 
infinitely more important to get our hands on. In just one episode, we are down the rabbit hole pretty deep already on this topic. That's one thing I do know for sure. And there are more details, too, of this fascinating character, Richard K. Snagel. Come join us in the next several episodes as we continue on this journey. And in the meantime, I'm going to go settle in and make a sandwich. And before you go make a sandwich, please do head on over to our YouTube channel, JFK The Enduring Secret, and subscribe. It won't make your sandwich taste any better, but it will bring a big smile to my face when we reach the number 1,000. Thank you for listening to episode 183 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 